Welcome to Sintalk. The Sintalkers around the table today discuss the mental and environmental. We'll think about the interrelationship between the inner mental and the external physical world. Is intelligence in the brain? Are heuristics flaws or assets amidst uncertainty? How does neural circuitry map the structure of the environment? How does a worldly stimulus capture our attention? Is there such a thing as eternal human nature? Is cognition adaptive? What role do norms and frames play? Can the properties of the mind be derived from the environment? What is the long-term future of mind-environment interactions? And can humans and machines interact better in the future? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Biju Dominic, he is a chief evangelist at Fractal Analytics. He works at the intersection of artificial intelligence and neuroscience. He is based in Mumbai. Professor Ramesh Kumar Mishra is a cognitive scientist and is currently at University of Hyderabad. In his work, he's tried to combine ideas from psycholinguistics and visual cognition, particularly in the area of attention. And Professor Smita Sarkar. She teaches philosophy at JNU in Delhi, and over the years she's tried to work on human rationality and psychology of moral reasoning, among others. So, Smita, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Um, maybe with some kind of a scan or reflection or provocation, pick a word of uh, of of what is mind. and does it have an ontology is it is it this thing which is somehow out there or or is it something interactive what's the nature of mind and and how would you or your fellow philosophers and people who've come before you and people around you what's what's the current thinking and on on what mind is and what is that relationship with the world out there what is it well for a philosopher it's often a very difficult question to answer to give a very specific answer to it though i mean over decades over centuries we have had this question with us what is mind and people often take a metaphysical stance saying that whether mind exists or not so in a way i mean over my years of research and study I don't want to move away from the question and kind of have a very reductionist stance on that mind is nothing but the brain because for me brain doesn't explain everything that we experience and on the question whether mind is out there in the world I don't yet have a very clear understanding what the nature of that mind will be but do you, do you do philosophers situate the mind like what is its uh... what is its position is it is it inside us is it somehow between us and the world is it like what is its uh, 
space time status i believe the mind is within the individual if one has to locate a mind not in its physical essence but where is mind it's within an individual but the whole point is the mind cannot it's not an insulated entity it has to keep growing with its interaction with the environment is it is it a, some kind of an emergent outcome of the brain possibly many emergent theorists would say that consciousness as a property of the mind is an emergent property so that is one take but if i have to locate what mind is within an individual within a human body at this point of time i do not have a means to say where it is but is that my, is that is that a worthwhile question at all question one can ask anything but does it matter i think i mean there are f- more interesting questions that one that how a mind grows with its interaction with a certain kind of environment mm-hmm. how a mind thinks how a mind interacts how a mind reacts because predictability of the mind how a mind would respond to a certain situation is not universal in the sense that it is not a given that all individuals will not react in the same manner to a certain situation because that that because no two individuals are identical exactly so the variations are more interesting to study rather than asking the question what is a mind where do we locate it however is there something common to all minds is there such a thing as property of the mind which is universal that i think is consciousness being conscious that is located i mean that's how traditional philosophers have believed it to be that the essence of mind is consciousness and that is what makes us different from a non-conscious entity and biju i i know like smita is in the philosophy department and she's thinks about these sorts of things you are at the cusp of a lot of interesting theoretical work and we'll talk to ramesh about it um but do these sorts of questions have any relevance to you at all does it what do you think of the mind at all what is mind for you i think the obviously the the question what is a mind where does the mind reside is a very well relevant question when we are trying to approach uh, any practical problems in the world and for a long time i used to think that uh, mind resides in the brain Uh, but Besides i think in the brain in the brain that was my initial belief now i have changed the brain is the superset and somehow mind was inside it yes. whatever uh, yeah or yeah. both are the same i yeah. used to believe you know it's all our thinking and all our thoughts are emanating from the brain and mind is exactly that and it's just uh, you know synonym for it but as i started understanding human behavior i realized no mind is much wider than that for example in when i looked at embodied cognition i realized that the dress that i wear has an impact on my thoughts and my actions so the dress that i wear is a bit of my part of my brain uh, that is part of me embodied uh, cognition but i also realized that the environment that i am in the room that i am in or if i am in a public place that place has an impact on my behavior so that is extending you know my mind is then extending onto that particular place i also realize in a lot of cases my decisions are taken from let's call it uh, the the behaviors of what the people around me 
So there is a, an intelligence that I'm gathering from the people who are around me. So in a way, my mind extends on to the There's something social about it. it is, there's something, there is something social about it. So I today take a much wider perspective. Where does one uh, draw the circumference? Because, you know, I think the, the, the intellectual dilemma with this constant widening is that one can keep widening it all the way and say that, you know, whatever, let's say in the most extreme version, this, it's all a part of some super consciousness, etc. Like, where does one, do you feel the need to draw a line somewhere? or uh, It depends on the type of problems that you deal with. Hmm. Assume I'm dealing with a problem which could be deeply personal, then I might have to only look at it maybe between my, my brain and maybe the answer lies there. Assume, you know, a schizophrenic thought or my own personal thoughts, it could be there. But for example, when we were working on, uh, you know, in the slums and how people are sort of throwing all the garbage around and we had to solve that particular problem, I realized that I have to take into consideration what is my interaction with this individual with the rest of the people in the slum. So it depends on the problems uh, where I decide to take a much, what I call a constrained view of mind, or I decide to take a much wider perspective uh, of the mind. Where would you be on this, Ramesh? Um, and a narrow question, what's the relationship between, I think I don't know whether you cringe at the word mind, but let's, let's do tell us where you are in brain versus mind, brain hyphenated with mind, etc. And the world, what is what is that interrelationship? Do they constitute each other? Do they make each other? Is one a subset of the, what, what's, what's happening? How, what is your imagery, schematization, conceptualization of that? Uh, since Descartes, we entered into a dualistic uh, dichotomous conceptual world, and a lot has happened. Uh, but since I practice cognitive science, I mouth these words more frequently to students and other, and write about them all the time. Right. But I often wonder whether the materiality is the only answer, because we have committed ourselves to an objective rational science. And there's no way looking back because there's this big danger of then getting drawn into uh, a landscape from where we can't, uh, you know, that's our past. But then wide reading in many fields, for example, in evolutionary psychology or cognitive archaeology and philosophy. Cognitive archaeology? Yes. Um, what do you uh, mean by that? Uh, cognitive archaeology is the study of how our cognition evolved in our species hmm. uh, from a comparative uh, paleobiological perspective. It. it is to reconstruct uh, evolution of uh, uh, main, main strands of cognition like attention, working memory, perception in our species, particularly during the upper Paleolithic, 50 to 60,000 years ago, right. when our ancestors started creating uh, fabulous art. Uh, they started uh, industry, uh, making a stone, uh, you know, tools based on stone. They, they probably first... Uh, immerse themselves in, in aesthetics, appreciation, where various communities probably evolved. It has to do with settling down, food, more calories, um, more energy available. Uh, as far as recent estimations, settling down uh, with agriculture began 11,000 years ago. Right. So Upper Paleolithic actually is, uh, is termed as the first cognitive revolution because human beings realize that they're not here for a reflexive behavior, uh, like eat, drink, sit, and fight. But they are here for something else, and particularly is there is there a causal 
explanation? There is, there is no clear consensus on that. But the brain's ability uh, to deal with symbols, create right. art, and value symbols, and value people who deal with symbols, and we, it has remained the same. Right. It's something mesmerizing to me. The right. humans don't value materiality at all. They indulge with materiality as if a compulsion, but they don't value, they turn their back on it. Right. The very, moment very they accept materiality, they're into mental illness. That has remained the case with all of us for 50,000 years ago, and I would subscribe it any time. So there is therefore a compulsion, or you can say incorrigibility in us, to be abstract and vague. You call that mind, you call that something else. Your other question was whether I obviously don't uh, accept this idea that um, your brain is uh, the mind, or brain activity is, is, is the mental. So that would be identity. So not all, I mean, these are just words, but cognition isn't just in the brain? Cognition, well, I, I also hold this idea, you know, uh, panpsychism, for example, or the more recent uh, varieties in philosophy of mind of phenomenology. Right. Um, the whole universe could have uh, a mind or consciousness and we are just a part of it. So there is no reason for us to be so arrogantly supposing that we evolved uniquely to have this cerebral cortex that has to have this mind to interpret the universe. Right. It would be too absurd a position to take. So what is the brain's position in all the this? Brain what is, is, okay, what is brain? Brain is, is, is an ontological fact. Like, it evolved. The brain is a tissue. Brain is a, is a massive muscle. Ma massive, you know, 80, 80 to 100 billion neurons. And they apparently genetically are designed to perform certain tasks. But the key question is whether all these 80 billion neurons are conscious themselves. Or do they lead to consciousness in some way? We don't know. We find when... What is, what is the brain's relationship with the world? The brain, uh, as far as scientific theories of it are, the brain interprets the world. Because the world needs interpretation, and that interpretation we call consciousness. Is it changed by it? Environment does modify the brain. There is big, you know, ex environment does modify. The brain also modifies itself, what we call neuroplasticity, with uh, its own motivations, intentions arising within itself, and it indulges in various activities, then gets itself modified. What sorts of activities or phenomena are neuroplastic and which are not? For example, lots of skills. Uh, even simple walking happen over a day or listening to music or just being in nature and uh, reading or just conversations, talking, social cognition or altruism or helping around people or just participating in things without any proper agenda. All these things are being uh, helpful in, in a re... It's like refueling the brain so that the brain continues and it has good meaning for me in, in large-scale social cognition among humans. So it can actually cut down a lot of trouble that otherwise appear uh, on the surface to be very problematic. What do you mean by that? I mean the civilizational differences that people often talk about, that people are absolutely problematic in understanding one another. That's why they wage wars and uh, economic warfare and so much. And you think so. that's too simplistic? It's an, it's an alibi, so. an excuse? The point is that economists have understood it or social science understood it from a different point of view. But mind-brain scientists have their own stake on this. So I don't understand a war the way you know, a, a petroleum specialist would understand that America uh, colonizes for uh, fuel. <laughs> So I, I look at it as, as a compulsive collective human behavior for all regions. And this can be trained through policy. So I am beginning to take a lot of interest in how cognitive science and government policies can work together. Where, where what role Biju does uh, 
I think we've used the word social a few times. And where would you be on the scale given that you've done your share of projects and intervened in many of the situations in many interesting ways? What have you come to understand can be changed and not changed? So when, when Ramesh says neuroplasticity, does it mean that everything is plastic, everything can be changed, everything is intervenable? You know where I'm going with this. I take a very optimistic view about uh, behavior change. Um, I believe that um, maybe most of the behaviors, we might be able to change it at least for a short time. But achieving behavior change and then sustaining that behavior change over a longer period might be very, very but difficult. But is there something called deep human nature which can't be changed? I used to use the word incorrigibility a few times. Yes, there are certain things. Uh, for example, the way I measure speed, the way the brain has always judged speed, for, for brain to judge the speed um, you know, of something, they needs a reference point. So there's no reference point as it happens when you're on a flight. We can't judge speed. And uh, we have, the brain hasn't found any other way uh, because ever since we started flying in air, we should have had, we haven't found a way to actually now judge speed. So it looks like there are certain, let's call it from an evolutionary point of view, there are certain constructs, which I think we find it very difficult to, uh, uh, you know, uh, to change. But this is largely a neuroanatomical, physiological, biological kind yes, of realm. you're right. Uh, this is not exactly a interpersonal, social kind of realm. But for example, there is something which is intersocial because if uh, Antonio Damasio has done that work, and he said uh, that in singular cell uh, bacteria, uh, the in-group, out-group formation. So there was a set of bacteria that were cooperating, uh, but some of them didn't cooperate. Then there was a shortage of food. But um, And as soon as the overall situation came back to normal, I think all of them cooperated, actually said, uh, kept the others away. So the in-group, out-group formation goes back to singular cell bacteria, which is almost about uh, 3 billion years. So there are social factors that sort of goes back to the beginning of as as so you don't beings. need to be complex organisms for there to be sociality. Exactly, uh, because this be... this is a clear example from Damasio's work, which said uh, this in-group out-group perspective was there even among single-cell uh, bacteria. What does social mean to you, Smitha? Yeah, I was quite fascinated by Biju's response, and even to a certain extent, what Rumesh said. When we talk about social and in the context of mind, when we say that, and when we deal with groups or collectives, you know, there's something called a group mind or a collective mind. What is that? Is that just an artifact or? It is because let's say when you address a collective, you know, you're trying to change something in that collective. So you're not really addressing individual minds in that collective. So you are treating that group as a collection, as a collective, towards which you are trying to bring some change. So in a way, you are trying to think that entity as a collective mind. Now, how do you address that? Are there ways which are different than dealing with individual minds? So there is something called the social mind because, you see, as I said, that even individual minds are not insulated minds. It can't sustain itself by just being there, you know. It has to grow. It has to interact with the environment, with its immediate social given. 
and that kind of brings in further understanding of how others work now when i say how others work you're trying to understand you're trying to predict the understanding of the other minds right what they would do in a certain context and that is the reason when you look at mob behavior you see if you're part of that mob it's not your individual decision to get into that action but you're drawn into that action so then another philosophically interesting problem but this are, kind of involuntarism is a bit problematic isn't it it is problematic that's the reason when you study mob behavior you see the reason is that where do you pin the responsibility in that group if a certain kind of action is done which is socially unacceptable and if someone has to be accountable who is the person because there is not a single person who is out there who did that so i mean this is a kind of moving away from the point but what i'm trying to say here is that we always try to engage in understanding how social minds work and do we do we as individuals within courts and you know i think this with a philosophical balance one has to be very careful why do we then have the perception of having a mind of our own because we can think we can decide and reason on our own we don't need that dependence to think i don't have to depend on another mind to take my own decision i may need the content based on which i can decide i can reason but for my mind to think or reason it doesn't need it doesn't depend on another mind so in that sense functioning of a mind is individual it can partake in a collective it functions like how a liver functions or the heart functions and now i know <laughs> mind is not in in the anatomy yes. textbook but yeah yeah but it does have an individuality it, it's not that i can be in a room of 20 people but i can still disagree with them even if 19 others are thinking in some other direction but but we just spoke of this mob kind of situation yeah. where presumably it gets difficult to disagree you get swayed or whatever something something like that happens well that's where individuality comes in you can always at one point step back you know it's a matter of that moment in time where you decide that you don't want to be part of this collective you have that say but it depends on you know but again we are using very common parlance whether you have a mind strong enough to go against a group people do and others people can't you know they get swayed by what is going on because i think the emotional part of the brain gets more active than the rational part where it's you just go with the flow of things are are, are these are these dualities real like emotional part rational part left right all i mean these are all simplifications on them where would you be on this ramesh like how is the brain or the mind how individuated is it now i know it would be context specific xyz one shouldn't come up with laws and universal theories on these sorts of things but where where do you lie on this question i mean uh, 
I do, I do accept and believe that it's individuated to the extent that a cerebral cortex is, is an identity in itself. And it's certainly, it's like the humming of one washing machine is its own humming. Yeah. Whether the washing machine experiences that or not is another matter. Yeah. But you certainly are experiencing it is itself. But this washing machine has nothing to do with the next washing machine, which right. may hum by itself. So, uh, yeah. But since uh, there is this dominant theory that uh, human, human minds have evolved uh, parallelly, trading with one another, so we have this culture that we can understand. Um, and so we, we can also have different brain states, but similar mental states and vice versa. What's the mapping between the two? So the mapping is not a causal mapping. It can be, it is mysterious. It's not a causal mapping. But that's refracted by culture, individual it, 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 disposition. It, it is a long continuation, uh, obviously running at least since 3.5 million years ago. And it's constantly being modified because of the events that human beings have created and what they think is important. So brain is constantly undergoing evolution and mind is a projection of that. So this is the neuroscience view. But now the other view is that mentality is part of the universe. There is something uh, in it that is not exactly explained by its constituents. Even particle theorists, physicists are beginning to accept that they don't really know how to define matter per se. So we have Galen Strawson like philosophers who right. have uh, blended in Correct. this idea. So it's very difficult now to judge whether you can maintain a dichotomy or you would like to believe in some more radical theory because we uh, cannot uh, probably accept this. Uh, so is it, are you, are, you, are you directing in the direction of a certain kind of monism or it's something else? No, it would be interactive dualism, but it would be far more broader in its contour than what it is now because we are also limited by our tools. You see, when brain imaging came up 20 years ago and cognitive neuroscience uh, started and people thought that they had found out the brain areas for all this complicated stuff, but that's not true anymore. Yeah, that simplistic phrenology if is that, stupid. Yeah, yeah. If that's not true anymore, so we have to look elsewhere. So it's beginning, uh, there, are, there are a lot of other smaller revolutions that are happening that are more cultural. So now those revolutions are suggesting to me that human beings are aspiring for a new interpretation of themselves because probably it's more beneficial rather than this hard-nosed reductionist um, sociobiological position. So we have to keep whatever is good from the science that we did. Yeah. But we have to look beyond. And now that we are exploring the outer space, questions of ethics, question of uh, us being there, and if we find somebody, God knows, or something even, that has the slightest hints of consciousness or agency, then we have, we have to undergo a, undergo a complete re, a revision. Yeah. Yeah. So we, I look forward to a more expansive, let's say Thomas Nagel, who wrote a book a couple of years ago asking for a Second scientific revolution, because yeah. the first scientific revolution's agenda does not help us to crack this problem. He's done a good job over the last three, four hundred years. Yes. But, yeah. So his is not monism. Idealism is not even the appropriate word. It's interactive dualism, but it's also calling other things in it, like culture, like emotions, and people's own, you know, this absolute desire to find meaning in meaninglessness. So we have to thrive towards that. And we can't do it materially because we surround ourselves with all these kind of things, white wars, that's materiality or, or more money. But then human beings are sad. So psychiatry has no quick response. Like pharmacological psychiatry doesn't solve problems. So we have also left the subjective field, psychoanalysis, and that is a gold mine to be on earth there. Yeah. So that we, we, you know, we thought that we can be this puritan, rational, objectifying selves, which doesn't work at all. Because you can't explain business, you cannot explain politics, you cannot explain human affairs. You cannot explain mental illnesses. You cannot explain why children don't want to learn. 
cultural evolution of 4,000 years. Many, many children are turning their backs to yeah. it. So we find ourselves in this mess. And it's very difficult, therefore, to have clear-cut uh, dichotomies and uh, tilt towards one. So I will always like to believe that we are in the infancy of this cognitive revolution. We are actually in the infancy. So we do not know where the offsprings will go with regard to the question of the mind. Or and more. what tools do we not have? Well, coming to tools, we don't have exactly, for example, the tools that are temporally high enough or spatially good enough that can tell you exactly, even if you are a good reductionist, tell me if this mental event is the output, what is the corresponding brain event? So we are getting the signals much delayed and our analysis methods are not as good because we don't analyze data of individual participants. And a lot of cultural artifacts are coming now because brain imaging goes with a prototypical assumption. Yeah. Now every human brain is different because yeah. it has been constructed by its own evolutionary history differently because it serves that culture's requirement. This is the idea that is catching my fancy. Cultural neuroscience is this. Like whatever we think, go by, we feel is serving the continuation of this culture. Have you have you experienced this this culture specificity as you've tried to intervene in situations and try to use the tools and tricks and ideas and theories from neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience? Things that you thought would work but don't work for a very, very non-material, norm-culture type reasons. Culture, I think, of course, uh, it, uh, it has. I think one of our recent work we had done on vaccine hesitancy across multiple countries and what we found was that each country has uh, its own sort of broader reason as to why um, you know um, you know why they didn't really go for I mean they didn't go for you know COVID vaccines. Uh, one of them, for example, uh, we clearly found was that uh, a factor that determined whether a country went for vaccine or not was the amount of confidence they had in the leadership of that particular country. For example, Pakistan was one country that we had studied. And Pakistan had just gone through a coup at that point of time. Right. And so there was a destability on the government. So there was no one concerted, let's call it a leadership, to tell the people of that country, okay, now this is important. So when there was a chaos on top and there was a lack of leadership about the importance of... That somehow that leads to indecision in the masses? Yes, it did. E even about personal decisions? Yes, it was a life and death situation because COVID the vaccine was a life and death situation. And it did lead to that. So it can, um, uh, some of these can have a real impact on uh, individual So in a, in a certain kind of way, political stability, political form ends up having an implication for something like of this nature. So much so we said uh, COVID uh, vaccine wasn't a health issue. It was a political uh, issue. Um, so uh, because um, I think everyone at a broad level knew that it was important. But the factors that were influencing that decision whether I should go for a vaccine or not uh, was not taken based on a health parameter. People who spoke about the consequences or the medical consequences were far lesser. But I think uh, the reasons as to why they didn't go for it, a lot of them were mostly all at a social or a, at a cultural level. What has been your understanding, Biju, of what is personal? What is personal? Like, are, are people... When you've done your work in various contexts, do they necessarily and often always think of themselves as social entities or you see them as being very individuated, very specific individual reaction to situations? I know you're designing interventions which are 
at the level of the group uh i'm just trying to have you reflect on experiences if there are any maybe they aren't where where somehow this mapping doesn't happen and individual reaction responses are uh, somehow they don't cohere to something more averaged out if you know what i mean actually the trespassing death uh, issue in mumbai is through throws up a very interesting perspective what we found is where people cross in large numbers actually accidents don't really happen because uh, there, there is <laughs> because so even if someone is getting into a bit of a dangerous situation there is a very typical behavior among someone who doesn't know and he knows that uh, you know the person behind is in a dangerous situation so he just shouts out train train gaadi gaadi and he moves on he doesn't even know who that person is but that person oh, these I, are not groups that know each other no, yeah so these are these are just strangers crossing and there are at times there are thousands you know hundreds so at, groups of strangers are safer than yes exactly and when we studied the accidents across uh, mumbai what we found is accidents happen in places where people cross uh, once in a while all alone never in places where people cross in large numbers same is also what we found when we studied um, accidents at unmanned level crossings so where unmanned level crossings where there are vehicles crossing at uh, very large frequency uh, we found accidents don't happen accidents happen in places where once in a while a truck so these are ad hoc yes so there is that individual where he is taking a decision and he's going wrong but when he is part of a larger group some of the social cues exactly. are there and both he he sort of reading the cues from the behaviors of the other people around him and that becomes a sort of a protective shield in these uh, situations yeah it it kind of it kind of ends up supporting the point you were making earlier where are you on this question of social individual i think we are all in a way we are always aware that we are social you know we belong to a social um and this demarcation between individual mind and social mind i think it's there but it's a constant interplay between the two mhm we want to be an individual we want to be an individual thinking being but we also are aware that we belong to a much larger context so even within a family we are no longer that insulated individual mind because we are constantly interacting with other members of the family where they also have their own points of view so sharing of perspectives at a regular level at a daily level kind of keeps us aware that we are also social we cannot always have our own way which is completely different from others so being part of the social is real but i don't want the social mind to dictate my entire being in terms of my thinking in terms of my ideas in terms of my decisions beliefs my volitions you know part of it is of course given socially i think that when we when we are at a growing phase a lot of the values our beliefs are inculcated from society without even reflecting on them but we are always i mean the independence is there where we can always go back revisit and revise those beliefs those values at a more rational level you know a little while ago smita you used the the dichotomous pair of emotional and rational 
Now, is there a mapping between emotional and rational and individual and social? Like what I mean is that does one end up looking for social cues for these emotional, affective sorts of things or even with what you would call rationality, reasoning, something mm-hmm. more formulaic um, and so on? Does Does that lie on one side versus the other? Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, I think the division is real, the rational and the emotional, but I don't see it as rational versus emotional. I think there is presence of both. And, of course, in social context, we are driven more by the effective side than the rational side in many contexts. It depends on how personal the context is. If the context is very personal, I get to have a more emotional engagement than when I'm in a more neutral situation. So my perceptions from that neutral situation does affect me, but it doesn't affect me deep enough to have emotional responses. We can have reactions in a neutral situation, but we always don't react at a personal level. So, I do maintain this distinction between reason and emotion, but I don't see emotion as something which is lower than reason because we have to engage with both. Very, very, very interesting. And uh, Biju, when you think of situations, where where does emotion come in for you? Uh, what is, is that a necessary uh, intervening counter for behavior change? Or, like, where are you on this emotion versus reasoning uh, split or dichotomy? One, I go back to um, Antonio Damasio's work and his book wherein he published his studies and he called it ideally Descartes Era, wherein he said the duality that the Western philosophy had actually maintained, the rational and emotions are two separate parts and uh, they should not really be combined in decision-making, he said is wrong because... He had recreated... Even a lot of the reasoning is metaphorical and so on. You, you mean it in that sense? No, he took... What he did was he recreated Phoenix Gage's brain, which was kept in Howard Medical Museum. And he figured out which part of the brain got damaged when that iron rod went through his left eye and came out. And then he found 12 other patients who also had lost exactly the same parts of the brain, uh, you know, due to some other reason. So it is is ventral, medial, prefrontal cortex was, was what was got damaged. And what he found in Phoenix Gage and in all the other people was a very peculiar behavior where they could analyze, they could actually take all the information, analyze all the information, but they could not take uh, a decision. So therein based... So it's a separate, it's a different faculty? He's, no, because this faculty, a ventral, medial, prefrontal cortex is in, actually involved in emotional processing. So Antonio Damasio comes to the conclusion that if the emotional processing part of your brain is not functioning, you cannot take a rational decision. Even if you've done all the calculations. Yes, you've done all the calculations. So that was a huge inspiration for our work. And we then started taking into that all human decisions is a combination of rationality. So somehow it acts like a binding exact. force yeah. or something to that effect. Not just a binding force. What we're also realizing, for example... Uh, many times we have this feeling that emotions are not very good. If that's so evolutionarily, the importance should have come down. But if we were to look at it, the emotion of fear has actually saved far more human lives than all of modern medicine put together. 
And in a lot of our work, I think we have actually used what we call injections of fear. That means that fear creates a reflexive action, which is evolutionary, and it's always very useful. So in a lot of behavior change work that we have done, uh, it's very rarely uh, rationality, but it's always emotion-based. So we are a strong believer that emotions actually are uh, much more important than rational uh, sort of uh, perspective. And Biju, this would go for decisions which are temporarily prolonged. I, I understand it about crossing train tracks and the split-second decisions and so on because their by and larger emotions take over. But for things that you can decide on over months and years and days, even for things like that, would you say that uh, a, a similar kind of framing would hold? Look at most of the relationship we have. It's the emotional feedback loop, positive feedback loop that is keeping us on in there. So even there, I think uh, it is much better. Even when you look at the incentive system, for example, the rational would be to give up money and we know the diminishing rate of utility for that is much, much uh, faster. Whereas when you talk about, uh, say, emotional incentives, encouragement others are much more long lasting and um, and then it's much so it clearly shows that emotions uh, are really definitely far superior than the so called the rational approach to behavior change interesting and ramesh i want to go to you to maybe start a new line in our discussion of language mm-hmm. and where does language enter all this like and, you know, I know you've done your share of work and mm. multilingualism and all that. Now, as of now, as we think of the brain and the mind, we're thinking of it in a abstracted way and we're getting these inputs and symbols and cues from the world and deciding on situations. But you started off and you started off with this very interesting point about symbolic manipulation and so on, and that leading to a certain redefining inflection in human history. So where and what does language do? Is it central? Is it a sidekick? Where is it in in the kind of questions and issues that we're discussing? Uh, Well, uh, again, we have to go to evolution. And the current controversy is that it might have evolved once the physiology in the brain was in place, the frontal areas, 80,000 years ago, particularly constructing complicated sentences using uh, simpler means. Yeah. And its acceptance as a shared norm as yeah. Wittgenstein would call a language game among the participants. Yeah. That's the linguistic culture. But the more important thing for me is that its predominance in defining even uh, everything, the mental affairs, like thoughts are expressed in language. So I do buy that because if you give language, uh, there's no other way you can really tangibly quantify human thought and consciousness. Were, were there thoughts before 80,000 years ago? We don't like, know, but uh, they were more visual or they were more gestural or they were more uh, limited or reflexive because we now are capable of talking things we don't see. We can talk about other minds or we can touch emotions or what's happening in the affective domain and verbalize them. And uh, we can uh, write, uh, we inscribe, uh, we transcribe uh, thoughts via language. So language... Uh, I know you mentioned that something about the prefrontal cortex and its development, etc. Led, led to language maybe. But did language in turn change the brain subsequently? That is a strand of uh, thinking uh, that language users or language changes the brain. Uh, if you frequently, uh, or you are an expert user of language or many languages, uh, where I've done some research, that you tend to also have better cognitive uh, functions. Because what you do, uh, basically, uh, you also find out more interlocutors. So you are interacting with many other human beings. 
because language use is not limited so your to, corpora of knowledge is right. vaster yes because language all always anticipates uh, a perceiver you know there's no such thing as a private language that's the foundation language. of social cognition yeah again same so, wittgenstein there's no private language yes yeah. so when i create a piece of thought i want someone to experience that so either i look forward to it or at least it stays within me or i vent it out by writing so language no uh, but neuro physically neuroanatomically neurocircuitry did those things change with language they did change for example when broca's area was first you know people were interested it had only few functions but broca's area now has 100 functions apparently all these functions are interrelated so we accomplish so much uh, via language the entire software industry or computationality of stuff is language based so now you are talking about chat gpt language models so the semanticity of it and our brains acceptance of it and its shareableness you know it's shared because there is no meaning unique to you you have to have other brains it becomes a social that. good all of us it is a social tool so i would say that a lots of our commerce is based on language or principles of it and if our brains would not be reading for it uh, it would not be possible so the interpretation of the world and the universe is via language and our affective uh, lots of work happened in the 60s on consciousness and language how you understand yourself or self consciousness does it change our phenomenology does it change what we experience does it change what we feel does it change our personal affective state language it is a controversial question because there is a transduction problem what right. exactly i want to say about my condition is not what i end up saying because yes. language has limitations yes. fairly acknowledged but at times because Let of go in the area of retrospection with, with education and, so and high literacy and this historicity of being you know knowing you know people know more now so they can end up saying things and in turn fill them because it can also go in the other direction how you define yourself actually you might feel that later or you are feeling that already yeah so lots of vocabulary related uh, that's the whole yeah. real idea right Self because we have all these interconnections frontal areas we have language areas both in the back and in the anterior areas then we have the emotion areas amygdala then we have the visual areas that are feeding in information the input so it's far more complicated the theory that we kind of think is that these areas started their functions or control over one another modulating capacities changed for example frontal area now modulates what you want to say even on your condition now would you define your current situation as sadness or a little you know worry right you know that's where it all rests so the frontal area actually is editing amygdala and then broca's area other areas are you know creating the pieces of chunks in your own language very interesting and then you are and that's your but that's not your experience there's some selective utterance yeah, yeah. so lang so language and experience are different things of course i think the right. question is whether there is a relationship yeah. the problem uh, with language in 20th century is that analytic philosophers use language as a tool to understand language objectivity the, the you know yeah. that that's what so they, they didn't want to be psychological behaviorists but that was that trick to uh, be you know bring in more science so lots of people in in america at least but then with cognitive revolution uh, language was viewed differently as part of biology as part of human culture and then other people dragged it to other domains so we in cognitive science we have two phases the classical phase is very very language based because it's very objective it's very syntactic it's etc but we have a more recent phase where phenomenology experience affective cognitive science and minds in other agents they may not have language so we have to accept that where are you on 
this relationships with the what does the mind mental state and some some of these sorts of things that we've been discussing what is its relationship to language well i guess language is a tool and language is a tool of expression i mean if i just take it as a tool of how do i express my mental states and that's one aspect i think the question is whether it ends up somehow contributing to the mental state itself do we think do we introspect in a certain language now of course we're in the world and there is such a mode called introspection is that language dependent well we do think in terms of concepts we think in terms of concepts and concepts can be expressed now when when we think of concept and let's say we don't give it a name concept x that is what we think about but language comes in to define that concept we cannot have a concept being expressed without language expression uh, is let's say a subsequent stage to some kind of cognition or introspection no, let's say even if i have to analyze that concept and understand the concept further for yourself for myself then that analysis would require some kind of medium right whether it is whether we call it language in terms of what we speak where everything has a certain structure certain semantics i don't mean it in that way but when we use concepts when we analyze concepts we need a certain step to the next now even philosophers in philosophers of language when they brought in language as a tool of analysis we had two different uh sets of philosophers one going with ordinary language philosophers yeah which we use the other were the the formal language users which was brought in by russell and others who said that look the ordinary language is full of ambiguity so if you are trying to understand the concept most of the philosophical problems would stem from the ambiguities the way that we are trying to express using ordinary language yeah which is the old wittgenstein thing that yes, all problems are problems was of in language in favor of ordinary language now but coming to the present discussion if we have to see everything in a kind of social context language is a social construct had i been isolated in an island i don't know whether i would need a language what would you develop one is the question if you were all by yourself you were robinson crusoe without a man yes, friday yes on an island yes do you and let's let's just say you don't die and you just mm-hmm. live there for mm-hmm. millions of years would you end up inventing language a private language would you probably i the more i learn right the more i experience i need to have cues in my memory to remember what the thing is so for that i may develop some kind of symbol some kind of sound just to remember what that thing is again we're going in the area of memory which is another very yeah, interesting yeah yeah but i'm saying that the more we grow with knowledge the more we have to retain right so i don't know it is just a hypothetical situation where if i am isolated for many years for my whole life i may develop my i may need at certain points to develop some kind of 
because you need to have a relationship with Smitha of 10,000 years ago, which, yes, you know what yes. I mean, because to be able to access yes, that and so yes. on. So there is an element of some kind of symbolic manipulation, retrieval Otherwise, and so on. all my language would be auditory or pictorial, with, you know, with, as I experience. With, with, no, with no memory function. Of course, I have to recollect because otherwise, how do I survive? How do I evade danger? Where are you on the language question, Biju? I look at language from um, one perspective, which is actually take a step back and saying, what are we going to do? I mean, what is the use of language? Language is obviously is to help us in some decision making. And uh, one of some of the recent work that we have done actually says most of the decisions that we're taking are happening in milliseconds. And for that matter, we realize most of the decisions in nature are all happening in milliseconds. So when things are happening in milliseconds, uh, language clearly we know is actually has a cognitive load because to look at that and process that is going to take a cognitive load. So I assume that in a whole lot of decisions, which are in what I call a millisecond, what we call microsecond decisions, um, the symbols that Ramesh spoke about might actually be far more effective in communicating than language because the cognitive load is much uh, lesser. And if these symbols are based on, let's call evolutionary constructs, uh, which is actually understood by everyone at a human level, then it becomes also very effective for, say, a country like India, where there are 18 different uh, official languages. For example, if I create a, a signage on a road, uh, on a highway from Hyderabad to Bangalore, in what language do I write that message? Because the truck drivers come from different states of this country. Now, so if I have to do that, I think that's where we realize trying to use language um, does not, it's not the most effective one, one from a cognitive load, because that little glance that the driver gives onto that particular signboard is for a millisecond. And he should be able to grab that information, process that information, and his behavior needs to change at that point of time. And that's when a symbol uh, would actually be more effective. For example, what we did was that instead of trying to say stop or slow down, uh, which is a traditional, I could have written that in English, we had an image of uh, a little child who's holding mother's hand, and he's sort of almost telling, uncle, please slow down. So he almost has a hand which is holding out there. Now, Hyderabad police has used that across what we have done uh, across Hyderabad as the stop signage. I think Ramesh needs to thank you for good traffic <laughs> in Hyderabad. Exactly. So does, that, it, does it work? It works. I think all the work that we've done in across various projects, uh, there are no languages. They're all based on symbols. And the symbols uh, we also realized is uh, communication works well where we can activate mirror neurons. So all of them are photographs. So we were one of the first to use photographs in, in signages because symbols then become far more powerful because expressions on people's face itself is communicating certain emotions to uh, uh, the person who's seeing it. More parallel processing, more direct. Happens. Much faster, Much faster. In milliseconds. So I see a whole facet of language uh, from that perspective. Of course, there's a language uh, importance the way we are now speaking in a certain language, but I'm just taking a slightly different point of view when it comes to the role of language in behavior change. Again, these are somewhat split-second kind of situations. I know you use the word decision-making, but there is such a thing as complex decisions, right? Things which have subparts and parts. And So the converse question is, 
that can all reasoning be done just with symbols? No. We are now <laughs> taking a bit of a, a point of view. Recently, we were looking at the decision-making of a home loan. And we realized it's a 20-month long, you know, right from my dreaming of a home to finally, you know, taking a home loan is a 20-month period. But what we're also realizing is that uh, each of those stages, there are a whole lot of micro decisions is what it is all about. So uh, what we call this long rational thinking is nothing but a series of micro decisions. Right. So that's an area we're still working on. Uh, but I think um, if we really get, uh, you know, to get to work and prove on it, uh, that would be the way it is. Because we also have taken learning, say, from sports. And what we realized is when a batsman is hitting a, you know, taking a run, from the ball being released to the ball, you know, batsman, the ball reaching the batsman is about 0.45 seconds. And we found work by Peter McLeod from Oxford, who has broken that down further. How much time it takes for me to process. Release the ball, for the ball to land, land. for the ball to swing. You know, th that is the 0.45 seconds it reaches you. But for the batsman to analyze, okay, now what ball is he actually going to serve, I mean, uh, bowl at me, that processing takes 0.23 seconds. Now, for me to lift my bat and rotate my bat, that's 0.22 seconds. Now, to in between, to decide what shot to play is about 0.01. So, what I've seen is if I look at it, each is a micro decision. Within a micro decision, which is a you know, 0.45 second decision. This is like classical calculus. Yes. <laughs> Integral calculus. Yes, exactly. I think that's what we should possibly get into all human decision making. So it's, it's, it's a position my team has taken right now. Uh, we're still working in that. Is it, it controversial? I don't think so. Because when you go, everyone will realize that, yeah, all my decisions that I've been sort of thinking uh, are nothing but lots of small, small decisions. And they were all taking me in one direction. Where are you on this specific question? I know this is, we're a little bit far away from the mind-world relationship, but surely you need to decide only when there's something somewhat worldly going on. Um, what, yes, what's your I think, think? He's, he's pretty much right in saying that, and that we know experimentally, that you have two stages of processing. One is a rapid-fire, quick assertion, which is a reflect, and it has stayed with us ever since our, because we have, we have to, you know, it could be a fight or flee or some sort of addition making. The second is more uh, analytical. Are there reflexes that have changed over millennia? I, I wouldn't say as days. The, as the environment and stimuli has changed, and we have learned to evaluate things differently, so we don't show those responses. Like you can, uh, you, you know, you have churches in America where snakes are being held and, uh, you know, uh, people go to, of course, it's dangerous. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, we, we have certainly evolved to, you know, we have more frontal areas control over those reflexes. As far as uh, the timing or temporality of it is concerned, I think interpretation comes late. And the quick reaction is the, is the first step. Decision precedes analysis? Uh, after Kahneman's uh, uh, major uh, uh, synthesis of his own work, yeah. we certainly, uh, uh, and Alan Col Coleman, uh, the our affective sensations are the decisions themselves. And right. we merely, you know, theorize yeah. with language. So language, you know, makes a nice product out of that yeah. so that we can make some other And people, that's for paperwork and bureaucracy. So yeah. we, we can make somebody else understand because language offers us that, but our bodily sensations are already telling us what to do. Our visual gestures, you know, minor vibrations. I do some studies with uh, finger 
you know, sensors attached to the fingers. And then you can see people as soon as the stimuli is on, that the body starts almost sifting. This is the whole action potential thing, yes. right? Like you can language know. maybe or may not be necessary. You can just have that experiment without language. And the person is already reacting to stimuli. So, so what kind of task do you give them? I use a lot of eye tracking where we, you know, present stimuli and track eye movements because I, you know, eyes have evolved to really channelize attention in a very deep way. And people actually look at things that are completely meaningless to them. So that's my particular band of research. Why people look at things that are meaningless in that context. So they look again and again at things um, that are being described by language. So I study anticipation in cognition. Like you have a cluttered visual scene and you just throw a hint. And within 50 milliseconds, people have landed on either the object that is being said or a related object. So as if the mind has computed uh, on its own, uh, what might be coming? And you think the cue or the priming doesn't contribute to it? It does, right? The priming does help because we have an association model of the brain now. Because right. many areas are... But in in a sense, the face space is pre-mapped. And once you see it, you like go already. back. Because yeah. we can... Cognition is not uh, about certainty. Like Michael Spivey, a very well-known name in cognitive science. It's probabilistic. Science. Yes, it is all the time anticipatory. Because we are not actually born to make uh, stances on the affairs of the universe. We are passers-by, and I fundamentally don't believe that our certainty makes any sense. <laughs> so being, so that's why risk-taking and liking uncertainty and trading on uncertainty and completely, you know, uh, you know, looking beyond than what is obvious. Uh, these are the buzzwords now in the world of business and politics and diplomacy because you can't have the same evaluation of a country if you want to do business and want its people to improve. So I think uncertainty and the ongoingness, not the completion, because our tasks are about completion because that's our technological, methodological problem. We have to measure reaction time or a saccade. But the ongoingness, so it's like these ups and downs and ongoingness, even while you are sleeping, that is the stuff. Yeah, this constant flux. So we are is... only, you know, theorizing on snapshots. So that's all. So we really don't know much. Uh, you referred to photography a little while ago, and I think the interesting thing is that it's all moving, <laughs> and it's the still photographs which are. It's all yeah, still photography or or you know uh, even a you know you know short video of a place or something of that sort. It's all again human beings have evolved to create memories. God, God knows for what reasons, because most psychiatric or psych psychotherapeutic illnesses arise from memory disturbances. Because uh, once you can can stop memories playing around of a certain nature, then you are probably more freer. Cognitive behavioral therapy is based on that. So we have memories and we are again incorrigible and addicted to getting those stimuli that give us that kick. So we are sadists in some sense. So we are not rational in that sense because you are being told not to look at certain things, not to talk to some people, not to read certain books because you will be more impaired, but you would go back again and again and again. So we have this addiction to go back again and again and again. We don't understand a bit of that, why the brain does it. Do we think more of the past or more of the future? I personally. No. Human beings. Human beings are caught up, obviously, uh, with the anxiety, uh, what's going to happen, because they always are the kind of predicting and they're successful or they're not successful. The past is nothing but, to most humans, guilt-ridden and full of remorses. And they want to kind of come out of it. That's Freud or, or Alfred Adler. 
that you want to save yourself and go towards the new, then you have to somehow reinterpret the past or you forego the past because it doesn't exist. And lots of our current people that are helping humanity, not the scientists, but who are speaking in ordinary language to people around, that's, that philosophy is this, what is right in front of you is right in front of you. The moment you are gone, nobody bothers. The universe is completely indifferent anyway. And you yourself would just be here for some more time. So how do you convince people that that's it? You cannot convince people. Again, the incorrigibility of this neural network that it kind of revibrates. The theory that is being propagated is that learning happens because of that. Right. Once, you know, you don't replay stuff, how do you, you learn? You go over and over again. You go over again. and over and again. Yeah. So you have cognitive control. So we concept. just live to build neural circuits and then boom, as soon as it happens, somebody like Biju is tapping into yes. it and something happens. Yes. <laughs> because we are in a forwardly movement trajectory. That's pretty much clear. But what's the reason then reflecting the past, keeping it alive and going, it's a it's big industry. You look at art, you look at, you know, stuff written by people and said by people hundreds of years ago. You look at religions, they're based on texts or uttered words. So th there's a lot of things to really understand here because we, so we are looking at uh, the future as, as if, you know, cut and razor, like a glimpse and we don't understand it so much, but we, we have no other choice but to, do something about it. And present is, present is nothing but by the time experience has happened, already it's past. Interpretation is taking place. So by, by the time we, st we stop talking, we would have uh, lots of memories and uh, other things to reflect upon what we, what we talked. So um, I think uh, philosophers have done quite a bit on this temporality and subjective feelings associated with times because Einsteinian conception of time and space are for physicists but the subjective perception of uh, time and space are for psychologists and philosophers. So I personally believe that not much work has happened. But the point that Biju was referring to, your conscious perception and your analytic mind's overtaking of that is one thing. And you already reacting at something and your decision making is something else. And that gap is very, very thin. 30, 40 millisecond, 50 millisecond. Depending on individual difference, it can be a bit longer because some people do react uh, later. Some people edit out. Some people have inhibitory control. They stop the reactions like in, you know, you can see in more common situations. Right. So that's individual difference. Also, I would add, it's all cultural. It's all so cultural. So there are cultures that are groups that react faster and more slowly? For example, in, in certain strict cultures, let's say in a traffic signal, uh, you do an Indian style you start walking as soon as, you know, it, it's all stop. But, you know, in India, we know people do. Everybody in and will look at you like you have violated something very yeah. horribly. But in India, it's not so severe. Yeah. So it is cultural and you, you are expected to honor that culture. But we're not going to be very good drivers in Tokyo. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so cultural and this confirming one mind to the collective's needs. That's culture because that's very important. We start talking about that. Because if, social proof, social yeah. sanctions, social... Because without that confirming tendency of the mind, it would all be chaos. And there was, yeah. What is an open question for you, Biju? What do we not understand in the areas that we've been talking about? What would you love to figure out, which is totally inscrutable, very, very difficult at this I moment? I think we, uh, why, the why of the human behavior is still a, a huge uh, mystery for me. Because uh, with the uh, improvements in data analytics, I think we have a fairly good grip of uh, the what. Uh, we didn't have that much uh, earlier, say about 20 years back when data analytics wasn't there. 
Uh, it used to be few focus groups or the others to know what people are doing. But now you have like yes. really big data. You can big track data. all sorts of things. Yes. Which is the what? That means we're getting a very good feel of what are people doing. But, but is there a why? Yes, of or course. Or are we compulsive? No, there has to be. Because if you, especially if you have to change a behavior or if you have to even reinforce that particular behavior, we need to know why is that behavior, why did the first place that behavior happen? And uh, so the why is a very important, maybe I would actually say, unless you have a why, you can never move to how to change. So why is a very, very important factor. And uh, to me, that is becoming much tougher. It's because... But isn't it, isn't it like a simpler answer? I know I'm just, just pulling our legs collectively a little bit, but why? It's like you just want to be loved by each other. You just want social cohesion, those sorts of things, no? Yeah, that's what we go up to the highest levels of Maslow's, they are happiness. And, you know, in advertising also, we used to do that. Finally, any product you buy is because I want to increase my No, but happiness. of course, there are sadists in the world. <laughs> Some of us are sadists, maybe, yeah. who knows? Some of us are sadists in context and so on. Yeah, but, but we that still doesn't give you a good grip of a good uh, stimuli that I can use as a to influence behavior. For that, I need to get a bit more deeper. And I need to know uh, that why at a bit more, uh, at, a, at a specific target audience, they would have a certain reason. Or um, overall, it could be a much, for example, when people couldn't judge, they were getting hit by a train as they're crossing is because we realized that we have a fundamental problem because our brain can't judge the speed of large incoming objects. Right. Unless you know that specific reason. That specific insight. Yeah. Nothing we, else would work. Nothing yeah. else. We would never solve the problem if you haven't got that particular insight. So uh, I'm a strong believer that... Uh, the most specific we get to know the why of the problem, uh, and um, it's very important for us to actually really. And understand. and in and in this exploration, does a deeper, better, more fine grained even more evolved, emergent, whatever understanding of the mind helps. Exactly, and not just the mind. I think this very topic that we're discussing—not the mind, the environment, all of this it, interplay interplay is very very critical for me to really understand the why of it. Because but it this is, is an infinite question. Like You're never going to exhaust all situations, all contexts, all use cases. So, But yeah, you'll develop more tools as you go along. That's the journey. Because if, uh, if there were no interesting questions in life, all of us would feel intellectually too lazy and we would all do nothing in life. So there, yeah. at least we have questions that keeps us awake uh, in the night. And this will be one question for sure. What will we dream of? <laughs> Where are you, Smita? What is an open question? What do we not understand? What would, what do you think is worth figuring out? Uh, I think from we, a philosophical standpoint. Yeah, I agree with Biju. Where we are still kind of uh, clueless about the why question. But I think the other reason why we often fail to grasp the bigger picture is because we want to get ev know everything at once. What we need is breaking down of the problem, looking at specificities of a certain area, and, and that is how you get an insight, insight of how this part happens. But of course, these are not... But sometimes you don't know what parts to break it into. Yeah, That's yeah. the only these problem with these situations. These are disjointed parts, yeah. you know. But my, my whole worry is that how do I gather all the why questions into a singular why question, you know, because we always say, why does this happen? And this meaning a particular phenomenon, 
but phenomenon doesn't come as a singular entity it it comes into being which means that it has a kind of background process to it now unless we understand that and we go move from one to the next to the next i don't see whether we have found a method to study the larger why question is there such a thing as uh, randomness just general stochasticity because you know in this kind of formulation where you look at a situation or a phenomenon and say you know what we need to break this up into these parts and let's make more effort it's a form of familiarism right just make more effort and we'll figure it out and tools will come along etc but is the world yeah w capital w world somehow there yeah, are bugs the world is unpredictable but we t- we have to start from what is given to us we can't deal with something which is not yet there you know um, no but even what is given to us yeah is it buggy yeah you see we can analyze what is given to us but we cannot kind of build a solution that would kind of stay with us to the universe yes i'm not looking for that, that kind of that's because of the solution. world is also ever changing yes you know it's transitory you know we go through certain changes i mean the change is the only constant as one would say you know and in fact i was quite i mean what he said uh in the context of how we do it you know and uh, I, i'm forgetting the point that he made uh, about the snap decisions about decision preceding interpretation about yes. physiology no, physiological the present, cues the present and the future you know why do we keep going back to our memories because that is where we learn from where we learn things from the experiences that we have already gathered and the real present is never real it's never there because by the time you experience it has already moved you know you're into the next present And you live in the past because you can't live in the future. <laughs> no, of course I look forward to the future. Of course. Because I you can't revise my past. You try to change it, you try to make past. it, but Yeah, but if I forego my past, I forego my lessons. I forego my experiences. You know? I don't say that we cling to the past, but we learn and we move on. And move on to the future which is not there, you know? we can only predict planning i think the tricky thing for most people i'm sure for everyone is to figure out what to cling on to and what to let go yes and, and it's yes. not like you can help yes. it and like create two yes. files and and that is also not fixed you know certain parts of our memory become very important at certain phases of our life yeah life situations change and we need yes. to yes we treasure memories much certain memories much more at certain phases of our life why don't we end with you ramesh what would you love to figure out something nice and snappy Yeah, you see, I t- I take uh, I t- I take a lot of help from uh, biological determinism because it's very soothing. You are on an autopilot, yeah. like you don't have to do anything, and you can also assume that whatever you are doing, somebody else is getting it done. Right. Like you are behaving like a, like a snooker ball on a on a table, yeah. being kicked by somebody. Yeah, somebody is kicking you. So it, it all will account. <laughs> it, it all will end in something, you know. Like evolution has no purpose, but it is a mechanism. Yeah. but i don't think that's how our affairs are so i think i would like to invest uh, on one point in next you know couple of years that cultural determinism that cultural variation of people's behavior why it is like that and why human beings are 
very problematic in understanding other human beings what holds them back some people do so the tendency to know other minds we are you know but other people collectively fight and lots of our everyday affair and you know lots of people have problems poverty literacy yeah and people uh, you know countries catastrophically have been drawn into you know drugs like colombia and i keep hearing ecuador they are completely yeah. in chaos because of uh, lack of uh, administration of people themselves you know new york times uh, writers would portray them as violent people yeah so when you have all this sobriety and politeness and all this you know high moral understanding of human affairs how can you term other human beings as so violent and brutal so my my i am trying to draw inspiration from cognitive uh, science from whatever i little know and trying to forge with other sciences even social sciences or uh, even but your conception seems even broader because you've spoken about politics and economics and policy my last and book and which was uh, you know a few months ago or a year ago was published on and i i wrote 10 essays rather on topics that are not generally tackled by cognitive scientists there i wrote a chapter on gender sexuality and on religion and one on consciousness it's all mixed yeah, up it's, it's all intermingled it's all it's all intermingled but thing is that we not just the mind with the world but everything mm-hmm. with everything else yeah. so, so we cannot any more compartmentalize because problems are holistic because mm-hmm. consciousness is holistic a person in pain is a person in pain he's yeah. not pain somewhere yeah so that is where we we have to work a lot hard although our science is more objective compartmentalized gives us more or less a good picture of the biology But when they start intermingling, all these 80 billion neurons, when they start interacting, the drama... So, you know, we've used words like reductionism and parts and so on, but those are ways of understanding. Those are um, not ways of experiencing the pain, but you try and break the pain up in parts and you try to localize it. And maybe it's a kind of existential pain in which case nothing much can be done or maybe some things can be done but in some cases you just go and get a tooth extracted and it works so uh, but yeah i think that that's interesting thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again thank you so much thank for coming you thank you thank you, thank you.